Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On today's episode, we hear from Bob Schieffer, Walter Shorenstein Media and Democracy Fellow, veteran CBS reporter, and former moderator of Face the Nation. He discussed the media's performance in covering the 2016 election and Donald Trump's campaign, and looked ahead to the general election. Schieffer also discussed money and politics, the divide in the Republican Party between its leaders and base, the possibility of an indictment for Hillary Clinton, and President Obama's legacy. I'm Tom Patterson. I'm the interim director of the Shorenstein Center. Uh, And welcome to this, the last of our speaker series for the academic year 2015-2016. And we're delighted. Uh, You know, we've had Bob Schieffer. This is the fourth time, twice in the fall, uh, twice in the spring, uh, with us as the Walter Shorenstein Center Fellow. And uh, it's been uh, quite a trip. We've overworked him every time he's come. uh, And... uh, but if you look at his resume, he's been overworked all his life, so uh, he's, he's used to it. Uh, he's covered all of the four major beats in Washington, uh, the White House, Congress, State, uh, Defense. Uh, he's anchored uh, the evening news periodically, a uh, longtime anchor of CBS's Sunday Morning Face the Nation, uh, and uh, moderator of three presidential debates, one in 2004, one in 2008, and one in 2012. I, I think you're taking this election off. Is that, is that right, Bob? So, so today we're going to talk about kind of the media uh, role in the campaign so far. And uh, let me start, Bob, by asking, let's go back to what's often called the invisible primary, that period before the first vote is cast, when uh, the candidates are out there trying to build their name recognition and and the like. Studies show pretty dramatically uh, that uh, Donald Trump uh, really benefited uh, from the heavy coverage uh, that he received. Um, Now, if you look at past elections, um, it's always disproportionate. I mean, they don't, the media doesn't kind of allocate its space across all the candidates. If you're a front runner, you're gonna get more uh, attention than if you're in the back of the pack. Uh, what's a little unusual about the Trump candidacy is that uh, usually you have to be at the top of the polls to get a lot of early coverage. Uh, he was way down in the polls and was starting already to get heavy coverage. Uh, much of it, more of it positive than, than you might think. And the only other candidate that was kind of even comparable, and he came in uh, with less coverage in 2015, was Jeb Bush. And his coverage was more negative than uh, than Trump. So, um, what's your feeling about kind of the media's performance in that pre-primary period uh, that meant so much to the Trump candidacy? You know, as we have come to, uh, and thank you all very much for coming. Let me just tell you one thing. I mean, I really feel like a professor sitting up here in this room. I, <laughs> it's very kind of academic, and I'm always surprised uh, when people show up. Uh, I, I really am, and I, I told uh, uh, a group uh, last night uh, when I uh, years ago I, w- I was asked to come down and speak at this little school down in Louisiana, in the heart of the Bayou Country, and it was Louisiana College, and it was a beautiful spring day, and uh, this overflow crowd showed up, and there were kids in every seat; they were sitting in the aisles. 
it was not an air-conditioned room like this one, and there's these big old-fashioned windows that ran down one side of this, this auditorium, and they had the windows raised up, and kids were sitting in the windowsill. And I, I looked out the window right next to the podium, and three boys had climbed up in, I mean, this is true, had climbed up into a tree, and they were sitting on a limb there looking in um, to watch me, and I told them, I said, you know, I am just... I'm really touched that on a beautiful spring day like this that so many kids uh, would show up uh, to hear me and a kid on the front row said, it's mandatory. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not going to ask any of you (laughs) if you were forced to come, but I'm going to assume that you didn't and I'm I'm, I'm very honored that you did. And uh, I've really had fun coming up to Harvard and being part of these things, Tom. And let me just uh, get back to your question. Uh, As we've come to find out, there are any number of things that Donald Trump uh, may not know as much about as some people thought he did uh, in the beginning. Uh, We certainly know he's challenging a lot of things that we've kind of taken for granted over the years. Number one, uh, you know, uh, not number one, but among other things, uh, our membership in NATO for example, um, talking about building uh, these walls and things. And I think he has made a very accurate catalog of, of what people are upstra- upset and frustrated about. Uh, whether or not he has proposed realistic solutions is another thing uh, we can talk about. But I'll tell you one thing that he knows a lot about. And he understands television. And what he figured out early on was that if he made himself available, he could get a lot of free time on television, on news programs. Uh, Generally speaking, candidates uh, who want to be on Face the Nation every Sunday and and, uh, meet the press and and do interviews every time you turn around, once they get out there and decide to run for president, they hire these consultants and say, you know, we've got to control the, we've got to control the narrative, we've got to make sure that we get our message across, and uh, the first thing they'll do is tell them, no, you don't want to be on these Sunday shows. They're going to ask you these questions that you may not want to answer. We've got to be in control. Trump understood that if you get out there and get on enough of these shows, uh, you're going to get your name out there and your brand out there because that's what his business is, is getting his brand out there. And uh, he figured out how to get for free what a lot of other politicians at that time, uh, Jeb Bush being number one, they were busy uh, uh, raising money so they could buy these campaign commercials. And I'll tell you something, it paid off for him, Tom. I mean, he he got on these broadcasts uh, uh, mainly because he was available. He didn't have all these consultants surrounding him. I mean, it, it was all in those days just right off the top of his head. And he got all of this attention. I mean, and as he continued on in the, that early uh, primary, pre-primary season, uh, he had this kind of innate ability to change the narration and, and, and focus the attention back on him. There's a, there's a uh, political consultant, he's an Australian, and uh, he uh, worked uh, in David Cameron's last campaign in... Uh, in Great Britain, and he had what he called the the dead cat strategy. And basically it was this, that if you're running, he said, if you're having a dinner party 
And no matter what the conversation is about, if somebody throws a dead cat on the table, the conversation will suddenly shift to talking about the dead cat. And I think that is what Trump was very good about uh, in the beginning and right on down to today. When the narration uh, was going in one direction, he just threw a dead cat on the table. And suddenly everybody was talking about what he was talking about and, and the attention focused back on him. He just had this uncanny ability. And I think it goes back to just having a real understanding about, about how the media works. Now, as we've gone on into the campaign, this repeated exposure, I think he is now having to you know, come up uh, with answers to some of these questions. And I think some of the answers he's come up with uh, really do not, uh, do not meet the test. And I think people are coming to understand that. So there's two sides to all of this, but he got out there ahead of everybody else and uh, he, he had a very good strategy. And I think it goes back to his uh, you know, sense of understanding really how television works. So. So, you know, I think many people believe that, that Trump, at least in the first instance, was a media creation. Um, no, least, I, least, see, I don't, I don't accept the premises yeah. of that. I don't think he was a media creation. I think he was a Trump creation, and it came from his ability to, to, to understand the media. Yeah. But, um, you know, and I, if you look at what's been happening with the press coverage of Trump recently, um, it's, it's turned very heavily negative. Uh, it was fairly positive early on. Uh, I don't know if you saw the Boston Globe. They did a full section uh, that was a dummy section where uh, they pretended that Donald Trump had been elected president. And uh, it's almost like the press now is trying to put its finger back on the scale uh, and bring down Trump. And... Uh, I don't know whether you share the perception of some that that's in fact what's happening out there. And if so, what does it say about kind of the media's commitment to kind of the fair and balanced, kind of the even Stephen kind of norm that's been out there for decades? Well, I, I think basically what the press is doing is, is, is asking the questions. And, and because he's been out there and because he has gotten so much exposure, uh, I think they're just just uh, you know, asking uh, the follow-up questions uh, on all of this, and you know, uh, you know, when he starts talking about you know we need to get out of NATO, I think that raises some serious questions, and I think I think the press is beginning to 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 respond for that to to that. I mean, when he talks about we're going to, uh, I, I'll I'll tell China what to do. I mean, that's all I need to do. I need to tell them we're going to put a thirty five percent tariff on Chinese goods coming into this country. Well, number one, he's not going to tell China what to do. China is not just sitting there waiting for somebody to come along and, and tell them what to do. Oh, good. I'm glad we've gotten our orders now. We know exactly what to do. I mean, anybody who's given five minutes of thought to any of these serious questions knows it just doesn't work that way. Uh, in the same way that uh, I don't believe that Mexico is going to pay for a wall. I mean, uh, he says, well, I'll just uh, tell them that's what they're going to have to do. And, and uh, well, again, uh, they, they, where are you going to send the bill? Are you going to send it to the mayor of Tijuana? Are you going to send it to the president of Mexico? Or, I mean, how, how's that going to work? You know, and, and so many of these things that he has proposed, 
uh, I mean, get the same follow-up question. How are you going to do that? You know, <laughs> and, and, and I think that's why you're seeing, uh, I mean, he's, he's gotten all the attention, but now people are beginning to ask the follow-up right. questions. So let's flip over briefly to the Democratic side and mm -hmm. uh, go back to the invisible primary period again, uh, pre-Iowa. Uh, and the uh, evidence there on the news coverage is that uh, Hillary Clinton got the bulk of it, which is normal for the front runner. Uh, she might wish she didn't have so much coverage because it was heavily centered on the emails. Uh, and then Bernie Sanders for a long time had difficulty getting uh, press coverage. So. What's your thought about kind of the way the press dealt with the early phase of the of the Democratic race? Well, again, I think it goes back to the kinds of campaigns that that were being run by both Bernie Sanders and and by her. If if uh, if Donald Trump was running kind of the new kind of campaign, very small staff and basically running it just off the top of his head, it's kind of like the difference in the light infantry and the heavy. Uh, infantry unit. It takes a lot of people and so forth to move that heavy infantry around and as we learned in uh, Vietnam and some of you here are, are, might be old enough to remember that. I'm probably I'm the oldest person in the room. I, I generally am. But uh, you know the Viet Cong they could just hit and run and hit and run and, and you know they, they could move quickly. And where Trump was able to move quickly and, and get all this attention uh, Hillary Clinton uh, had put together the old-fashioned kind of con heavily consultant-driven campaign. Uh, everything that the candidate's going to say has to be vetted and focus-grouped and all of that. And when people would come, you know, say to us, uh, how is it that you let uh, Donald Trump, you know, call in to a show? And why is that fair? Why do you never let Hillary Clinton do that? Well. I, my answer to that is, have you ever tried to get Hillary Clinton on the phone? I mean, you've got to go through nine or ten different people, and, you know, they have schedulers and consultants and, and all this business, and kind of, uh, that's why. I mean, and that campaign was just so slow to move and get organized. And, um, and so that, I think, in many ways, is why she has been given such a challenge uh, by Bernie Sanders. And... You know, every poll shows that, uh, you know, that people tended to, to say he was most more authentic than she was, that he was more understanding of their problems uh, than she was. And I think so much of it, I mean, remember there was one scene played out on television where her age, she was marching in a parade and they put all these ropes up where nobody could get close to her. Uh, well... You know, in the age of television, all that has an, has an impact on people. And I think that's part of the problem that she has had and, and why, you know, where Barack Obama was able to assemble this, this coalition uh, of minorities and young people, I think she has had a very difficult time. She's, she does very well uh, among minority groups, but she's had from the very beginning uh, this problem with attracting young people and young women. Now she she staged a real comeback last night in New York, uh, but you know after all she was the senator in New York, and I think uh, I think uh, that that's pretty understandable. But I think the kind of campaign that she put together, what I call kind of an old-fashioned campaign, 
and you, the contrast that you got between that and between Bernie Sanders. I mean, I mean, let's think about this. You know, here's a 74-year-old white guy, and he's the hero of young women when the other person uh, is a woman who is absolutely uh, legitimate and qualified to be running for the highest office. Uh, I think that says something about the kinds of campaigns uh, that, that both of them ran. I mean, we're talking, and, and Tom and I have talked about this, uh, you know, what we may be seeing here in this Republican uh, Party, we may be seeing something if they do go to a convention that will be kind of like what we saw the Democrats go through in 1968, uh, where, where the party came completely apart. And we may be seeing something like that uh, on the uh, Republican side. Uh, but having said that, the parties, both parties, and just the whole party system, I think, is in deep trouble. And I, and I go back to this. How is it that the oldest political party in America, the Democratic Party, and what is it the third oldest political party in history and, and in the world, how is it that it managed to come up with only one legitimate Democratic uh, candidate? Uh, lover or hater, she's absolutely a legitimate candidate with a strong national following and certainly deserves uh, to be a leading candidate, but they managed to come up with only one. And at the same time, and now we see that she is being given the fight of her life by someone who's never sought office uh, as a Democrat, who is an avowed socialist, who said at one point that he was not a capitalist. I have never heard a candidate for political office in my lifetime uh, who would make uh, such a declaration, and yet he's giving her a stiff fight. So I think both parties are, are in trouble right now. Uh, there was a, uh, I think, a poll uh, recently that shows, you know, it, we may be, if Trump is the nominee on one side and Hillary Clinton's the nominee on the other, it may be the first time uh, since 1989 when they both, uh, when they started asking the question, the pollsters did, that both parties have nominated someone that the, the majority of the American people don't like. Both of them, their negatives, are higher than their positives, and, and that's something kind of unique. We've, we've never had that before. I, I wish it were not so, but you know that's, that's what the polls suggest. Okay, let's open it up for questions. And again, uh, students first, and uh, could you please identify yourself before asking the question? Um, my name is Sanar. I am not a citizen of this country, but I watch this with great intent. Could you maybe talk about the follow-up question that you mentioned? I feel like when I watch a lot of media coverage, that the follow-up question has just started to happen. Do you believe that that's the case, and why has it not happened earlier in the process? Well, uh, I, kind of, I kind of alluded to that. Uh, I think, you know, what's, what's interesting here is, is, is that we're seeing, I gave a, gave a talk here, uh, up here uh, yesterday or the day before, I can't remember which, on, on fact-checking. And fact-checking is very important. And the fact is we're doing more fact-checking in this cycle than we've ever done. I mean, we're fact-checking everything that the candidates say. We're fact-checking the fact-checkers. And, and on and on it goes. But 
what's happening here is is we're having a campaign cycle where many times attitude seems to count more uh, to the supporter of a, of a particular candidate than facts. Uh, and we're also seeing a lot of just totally false information out there. I mean, you know, you can now uh, go to find blogs and, and I gave examples of this. You know, one third, about 29% of the American people and 43% of voting age Republicans still believe that Barack Obama was born in Nigeria or wherever it was. Now, how much fact-checking do you have to do uh, on that? I mean, but, you know, you go to, especially to supporters of Trump sometimes and say, look, here's the birth certificate, here's the notice that was in the paper, here's all the proof, it's absolutely, well, no, they, they will tell you that's, that's a conspiracy, that's not true. Uh, he wasn't born here, I just know he wasn't. And, and to try to get through to that, uh, I think, is, is the problem we're facing. I, I, think, I think we're asking more follow-up questions now than we were in the beginning, but I, I feel pretty good about the, uh, the job that the press has done. Uh, you know, I mean, just the most important thing that we can do is to let these people let the American people see these people, who they are and what they stand for. And, and I think, you know, this, uh, there are many criticisms I could make of some of the debates uh, that we've had up until now. I think uh, uh, sometimes the, uh, the cable uh, companies have made them appear more like a show, uh, you know, with a, or, or a heavyweight championship fight where we have all this buildup in the beginning and all of that and the music. But the fact is, when you come right down to it, I think we all are getting a pretty good picture of who these people are. And, you know, it's like I always say when I used to uh, uh, do Face the Nation, sometimes a non-answer becomes an answer. You know, you, you ask people the question, they don't answer it. You ask them again from a different point and they, they don't answer it. And maybe you ask them a third time. And after a while, uh, that becomes an answer. You know, the non-answer becomes an answer. I remember very well, uh, I think I was the first one to interview uh, Romney after, uh, after he, uh, you know, had the votes to, to be nominated. And I remember I asked him four different times uh, during the interview about his policy on immigration. And, and he, you know, basically avoided the question four different times. Well, that became the lead of the story. You know that uh, Romney refuses to elaborate on his uh, on his uh, uh, views uh, on on immigration, and you know I came away from the interviews thinking, and I had great respect for Romney. I I, I think he's a very good man, uh, but you know he he just avoided the question, and because he avoided it, uh, that became the answer. So. I, I hope we keep asking more follow-up questions, uh, but I think, by and large, I think the press has done a pretty good job of letting the American people know who these people are. Mm -hmm. Please, John. Hi, my name is John Gibbs. I'm an MPA student here at the Kennedy School. Mm -hmm. First of all, I just want to thank you for uh, coming. Um, I had the pleasure of uh, uh, seeing you yesterday as well at the uh, Shorn Seaton Seminar. So the question I have is about um, excitement. So when you go back starting last year around the summer or so, when you look at the debates, especially the Republican debates, 
you see viewership numbers and ratings that were kind of off the charts, something like two to three times higher than normal. And we're not talking 10% higher, 20% higher, but no. like double the viewership of normal for the Republicans. That's state. absolutely correct. And then you look at a state like Virginia and their primary, and you have like double the turnout um, of previous primaries for the Republican primary there. I mean, this is a level of excitement that's just enormous on the Republican side. And it's bringing people out to vote. It's getting people to turn on the TV and watch the debates. Um, so you have that. Then on the flip side of that, you have um, what I could call the Republican establishment or the elites who are looking at Trump and just cringing and saying, uh, we can't have this guy be our nominee. We're going to say never Trump. We're going to vote for Hillary instead. We're going to try to rework the delegates after the votes happen so we can pull them over to uh, Ted Cruz or whatever. So it seems like there's a gigantic divide between the Republican establishment and the base of people who seem to be very, very excited about Trump in a way that no Republican candidate has gotten excited um, in recent memory. So what role has the media played in that, if any? And do you see an interesting reporting happening on why this huge divide has emerged between the elites and the base of the Republican No, I mean, and, and uh, quite frankly, I don't think uh, the media had much to do with that. I think it had to do with the, uh, the two forces within the Republican Party. I mean, uh, you know, since the coming of the Tea Party, uh, which, you know, came to Washington to throw out the establishment, uh, we have this great divide now uh, in in uh, the Republican Party. Uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, who tried to uh, uh, run for president in this campaign early on, I was talking to him one day and he said, you know, he said, uh, here's the difference in what we're going through and what the Democratic Party is going through. He said, you know, the Bernie people don't like the Hillary people and the Hillary people don't like the Bernie people. But he said, in our party, the factions hate one another. He said, we just find nothing that uh, we, we can come together on. And, and that's why I think, uh, especially if we get to this convention and Trump does not have the 1,237 votes uh, he needs to get the nomination before he gets there, I think you might see the whole, the whole thing just, just come apart before your eyes. And I mean, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in 1964, the Democrat, I mean, the Republicans elected somebody or nominated somebody outside the mainstream of the Republican Party, uh, Barry Goldwater. And they went down, of course, to, to a historic defeat. But I think what may be coming here is more akin to 1968 and what the Democrats went through. And, and I think it can be very serious. Maybe we'll have two parties. Maybe we'll have uh, a party that just remains deeply divided and fractured. But it, it will take them more, in my view, uh, than one election to get past this. I mean, think about what happened to the Democrats in 1968, okay? Uh, they had the fighting in the streets. The whole thing came apart. The American people saw it on television. They lost that election. But four years later, uh, they come to Miami Beach, and with the idea of we got to reform this, they throw out all the party leaders, all the big city mayors, uh, people like Mayor Daley of Chicago. They threw them out. Okay, and, and they nominated a person that I think is a very good man, George McGovern, but someone who was far to the left of the, of the mainstream of the Democratic Party at that, at that point. They lose that election. I mean, he lost every state except Massachusetts, lost his, his own uh, home state. 
And, and then uh, they had to put in more party reforms, in, including the, the superdelegates and all that. But the point that I would make is it took them two elections and an impeachment before the Democrats uh, got back to the White House. And once they got there, they held it for, for only, only four years. Uh, this is a very serious chasm that's developed uh, within the Republican Party. And, you know, the parties, once candidates had the ability to raise their own money, which they now have, uh, uh, the parties themselves became weakened because they used to be the vehicle that the candidates used to, to raise the money. Now now they don't do that anymore. So I, I think it's almost at a, at a crisis point uh, in the electoral process right now. And I'm going to go back. Tom has heard me say this so many times that uh, <clears throat> one of the professors the last semester when I was here said, I'll give you credit for one thing, Bob, you stay on message. You know how to do that. Uh, I think what has happened here is that money has become such an overwhelming factor uh, in, in our elections now, and it is it has turned the process into such an odious uh, uh, exercise that serious people have just concluded they want no part of it. And we're seeing the best people in government, uh, the best elected officials, someone I always think of Olympia Snow, uh, a very moderate uh, senator from Maine, represented her, her state very well, was also becoming a, a force in national politics, would have been reelected. And she just said, I can spend my time in a more productive way doing something else. Uh, she said, you know, it's, it's just basically not worth the time and effort anymore. And, and to think of someone who would give up a seat in the United States Senate, the Senate of the most powerful nation basically in the history of the world because she thought she couldn't accomplish very much there. And you're seeing that all through government now, people that just say it's not worth the effort. And people don't want to have to spend half their time begging people for money, which is what you have to do once you get in there. So what we are left with are the people that are willing to do that. And it has just weakened the talent pool, in my view, uh, to a level far below what it ever was, uh, certainly in, in the time that, that I spend in Washington. And I think... You know, if I if I were going to put a title on this 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 campaign season, I would call it the chickens have come home to roost. I mean, we've been heading to this for a long, long time, and now here we are. So the floor is open to questions from anyone who's here. So all it takes is a hand, and we'll give you the mic. Yep. I'll try to keep the answers shorter. <laughs> I do tend to kind of run on here. Don't worry about it. Styles, particularly the midterms, and um, ha will other will other candidates be calling into Morning Joe and and attracting this much media attention? Uh, you know, uh, people always imitate what works, and and I would guess that that will will have some some sort of an impact. But you know, here's an interesting thing, and we don't want to overlook what happened last night. Uh, so Donald Trump wins, and and he won 
one big in New York, which certainly was no surprise to me because let's think about what Ted Cruz was talking about, all this campaign, you know, he was telling New Yorkers they're all a bunch of, you know, jerks basically. And, you know, he talked about New York values and all that kind of thing. Well, I didn't think, I didn't think Senator Cruz was going to do very well in New York and certainly didn't. John Kasich actually finished second. Uh, But last night, for the first time, when he came out to make his victory statement, uh, uh, Donald Trump made a short speech, about eight minutes long. Up until this point, when he has won, he has tended to go on sometimes uh, for an hour. Uh, He also never once referred to Ted Cruz as lying Ted Cruz. He actually, for the first time that I can remember, he called him Senator Cruz. He didn't call Kasich that Kasich guy. He called him. Uh, he called him Governor uh, Kasich. Uh, he didn't talk about uh, building the wall. Uh, he didn't talk about having Mexico pay for it. He talked about jobs and the economy. Uh, I think he is now. You're going to see a different. I don't mean a different person. Donald Trump is Donald Trump, and he he will always be Donald Trump. But I think you're going to see him. Uh, change uh, his uh, his talking points, as it were. You know, he's hired these new these new campaign aides because what what he came to understand that while you can get so far, you know, making these statements and stuff, that this whole thing of once you get to Cleveland is pretty complicated, and you need to have somebody in there that understands how how you do all of that. And and I he's brought in about three different people who are political veterans, as it were. There's Paul Manafort uh, and people like that. Uh, uh, and, and it looked to me like last night that they have basically are now are the people who are the, uh, exerting the most influence uh, in this campaign. So I, 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 I think you're going to see him now uh, try to be more, quote, presidential, unquote. And uh, I, th- I think that's his new strategy here. So, you know, we'll see how that happens and we'll see how that works from here on in. But I think it's going to, um, I think it's probably going to come down to California, which is the last primary. Uh, if he's going to get 1,237 votes, uh, he'll get the last ones in California, I think. But the table is now set. Uh, to favor him more than some of these these previous primaries. I mean, he he's not favored by as much in Pennsylvania, uh, which I guess comes Tuesday, as as he was in New York. But he he'll probably win most of the delegates there, and I, I think he'll probably do pretty well from from here on. Well, you know, we will again. That's why we have elections to to count up the votes and see what happens. But. Uh, if he doesn't get the 1237 by California, he'll be very, very close. And, you know, if he, if he is within, say, 50 or 75 votes, uh, I think it would be very difficult for that convention to nominate somebody other than him. But, you know, the, the, uh, the quote, establishment, what's left of it, of the Republican Party, and certainly Republican elected officials, in particular, the senators are scared to death of having him at the top of the ticket. Uh, they just don't. They, they're really worried about that. But uh, and that's why there may well be be opposition. If he if he's you know 
a hundred and some odd votes uh, from having the 1237, we may well have a really knockdown drag out uh, in Cleveland. And, uh, you know, you could wind up with uh, Paul Ryan under those circumstances. People keep saying, but he says no, no, no. Well, he said no, no, no about being Speaker of the House. And I, I can't think of a human being in American politics that if a convention came to him and said, we want you to be our nominee that would turn that down. I, I, I would almost bet money on that, that if offered, he, he would take it. But, you know, we're not there yet. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is John Cron. I'm here for the Executive Education Program. Uh, one thing I noticed in the beginning of the campaign, it seemed as though there were many opinion editorials, editorials, and comments on television that really seemed to belittle the Trump campaign. That did what with the Trump campaign? Belittle uh, the Trump campaign uh -huh. and kind of downplay it, which amazingly painted this person with great resources as a, as a seemingly an underdog uh, with the cards stacked against him. I wondered if you could comment if that helps on his advance and rise in the primary process, and if that's a tactic he might also try to use in the general election as well. Well, I think that's part of his selling uh, campaign. I mean, he talks about, you know, we've never had somebody that uh, <clears throat> thought to say, you know, I'm really rich, and that's why I would make a good president. Most most people kind of are, are a little more discreet like that, but he's he's made an asset out of that. He said, look, I'm not taking all this money from all these these rich people. I'm rich, so I can I can pay for this for uh, myself. And I think he's used that as as a uh, as a selling point in the same way uh, almost that Bernie Sanders has said, I don't have any money, but I've been able to, you know, raise my money through small donations while Hillary Clinton is making these speeches, he's being paid $225,000 an hour. I mean, that that's something that cuts through with people, and that they understand. I mean, I, I have, uh, I've, been, I've been interviewing Donald Trump for 30 years. The first time that I interviewed him uh, was when he got that uh, skating rink operating in Central Park. And I mean, it was an amazing story. The city had spent something like $11 million trying to get that rink to get the ice to freeze over and he said let me do it and they gave him the job and he got it done and in three months people were skating in central park and it was a great story and i remember you know going up and, and interviewing him about that and and i've interviewed him uh uh down through the years and i uh, he's 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 really i mean in, in the best sense of the word a great self-promoter I mean, that's, that's what he's all about, and uh, that, that's what he's made his money doing and, and talking about, you know, I can get this stuff done. Now, whether he can or not, I mean, that's a totally different thing, but I, I think you'll see him pretty much sticking to that same, uh, to that, that'll be one of his main selling points uh, in the general election if he gets it. Uh, Mark Rubin is also with the uh, Executive uh, Education. Mm -hmm. uh, with the popularity of the uh, Sanders campaign, and it seems like the disenchantment of the youth with the establishment right now, how do you see socialism being covered in the future? <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's a great question, and I'm not sure I know what the answer is uh, to that. I, I don't think it's going to, I don't see it catching on. Uh, quite frankly, uh, but uh, 
I, I think a lot of these young people uh, that, are, that are for Bernie Sanders, I mean, I remember, you know, I mean, there was Eugene Debs and, and all of that. I mean, there was a socialist movement in this country uh, quite a while ago. Uh, but I, I, I don't see it uh, going beyond that. But how are we going to cover that? Uh, I'm just going to be very transparent here. As they say, I haven't thought about that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where that goes, but it's something I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about. Maybe, maybe this fall I'll have a better answer for you on that. Hi, my name is Nancy. I'm in the Mid-Career Program. Um, I'm interested in this money and politics question and wondering if the media couldn't play more of a role in delineating decisions made by legislators, for example, and what we know, what is transparent about who's funding what. So decisions in Congress about internet and access, for example, why couldn't we see a certain congressman and hear the top three funders you know, that are in that space and, and so that mm -hmm. we, the media could help us more effectively you know, connect the I absolutely take your point, and, and and let me say I've been railing about campaign finance and campaign finance laws for for the last 15 years. Uh, but I told a group the other day, James Reston, the great New York Times columnist, once wrote, "The American people will do anything about South America, but read about it." And I think the same holds true for trying to get people interested in campaign finance and election laws. It is so difficult to get people to understand that campaign finance laws and, and money in politics impacts directly on them. They just, you can't get them to make the connection. They think it's, oh, well, that's something to do with politics, that has nothing to do with me. And the fact is, it has everything to do with them because it's why we're in the mess we're in right now in, 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 this, in this campaign. And we're not going forward, we're going backward. Uh, we basically have no campaign laws uh, because you have the Federal Election Commission that is completely deadlocked, even more deadlocked than, uh, than the Congress is. And, and here's the best example I can think of on... on uh, on, on campaign finance laws. And I, by 1975, uh, there were 32 people who have been, had been indicted and paid heavy fines or went to prison for campaign finance law violations. All of the things that those 32 people paid fines or went to prison for are now legal, are now legal. I mean, we basically have no laws regulating uh, campaign finance. I mean, you can give secret donations, you can give, you know, uh, donations of any size, uh, you know, with all these super PACs and all that. Uh, the one bright spot I think about all that is that uh, Jeb Bush raised $115 million and uh, it seemed to have no impact whatsoever on his campaign. And, and, and I mean, I like Jeb Bush. I think he's a nice man, certainly qualified for president. But maybe that means that the American people who don't believe much of anything anymore, uh, maybe they don't believe these nasty campaign ads that used to have such an impact uh, on our political system. Uh, I think that would be a good thing if people had finally seen through this stuff and said, well, that's, you know, that 
that's not true. And uh, but getting people interested in campaign finance, Marilyn Thompson down here, who's one of the fellows this year, is doing this fascinating study on campaign. Uh, uh, financing and and she points out. You remember when you used to could check out that dollar on uh, on your income tax and that dollar went into this thing and and then that that would be campaign financing, and it's now three dollars. Uh, what she points out and what I didn't know is is now three hundred million dollars sitting there in the federal treasury because the candidates no longer want to take it because they don't want to. Uh, uh, they don't want to abide by the limits. So it just sits there. This is, if they would agree to these spending limits, uh, they, could, they could qualify for this money, but none of them want to because they think they could raise more money than that could possibly help. And in 1984, Ronald Reagan did not attend one single fundraiser. And he was elected, as you'll remember, overwhelmingly re-elected in 1980, didn't take one, didn't go to one single uh, fundraiser, and, uh, and, yet, and, and yet he won. And what happened that year, each campaign got $30 million from that $1 checkoff, and that was a lot of money in 1984, $30 million. And it's still a lot of money, but, <laughs> but uh, in politics, it doesn't seem like all that much right now. But they got that, and they seemed to manage a, 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 a campaign uh, that was waged on both sides, a good campaign. And we got to get back to some way of figuring out how, how to uh, put some sort of regulation. I think this is at the heart of the problems we have. So, Bob, let me ask a follow-up on the question that Nancy just asked. So. <clears throat> We spend a lot compared to other countries on electioneering, mm -hmm. uh, but we actually spend more on lobbying than we do on electioneering. Almost twice as many dollars are spent lobbying in Washington mm -hmm. as are spent on campaigning for federal office. And yet, when you look at the news coverage, this is rarely uh, a topic of coverage uh, in the news. You've covered Congress. Um, What's, what's the hole there? I mean, what's, why is this such a difficult issue for journalists to pay attention to and try to bring it to the public's attention? You know, I, and I absolutely and totally agree with you. We ought to put more emphasis on that. And, and again, I think the reason sometimes we don't is it's one of those things that we think people aren't interested. And, and, and they should be interested. And, and part of our job, if we're doing our job, is to educate people uh, to, you know, to who, who is backing this and how did this come about and, and, and who is contributing money uh, to these uh, lobbying campaigns. But it's, it's a huge part. I mean, that's all, that's all that the candidates do now. I mean, you know, they, they don't, they, they, they come to Washington, they get in there on late on Tuesday, and they're there on Wednesday and Thursday, and then they're out of there on Friday. Well, the three days they're there, they're going to these, these uh, fundraisers at night where, you know, the lobbyists are lined up, and they, they don't even, you know, they just come and bring the check and leave. That's all they do now, and somehow we think that's, that's okay. Well, you know, it's not okay. 
that isn't the way the government was designed, and it's not the way we ought to be doing business, but uh, or, or running a government. But that is the way it is right now, and and I couldn't agree with you more. We we ought to put a lot more emphasis on it than we do. Okay. Uh, hi. Uh, thanks very much for coming today. Um, this, I'm Ken Kaufman. I'm an advanced leadership fellow. Assuming that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are the nominees, I was curious as to your assessment of what the key determinants will be in the general election and how that's likely to unfold. Uh, as part of that, there are some political scientists that basically feel that certain things such as the state of the economy in certain regards X number of months before the election tend to be very important factors, sometimes more important than what happens in the actual campaign in determining which party wins. So I just wanted to ask what factors you think are going to be the most important and what the outlook is for the general election campaign. I think generally speaking, it'll be the economy and the estate of the economy. That's, that's what our elections are almost always about. But I think the other part is, and, and here's a question we haven't talked about, Hillary Clinton could be indicted on this email thing. And, uh, you know, the, uh, I, I have no infor inside information to suggest that that's going to happen, but this is an investigation, a full-scale investigation uh, that is going on. Uh, at some point, the FBI is going to have to recommend to the Justice Department uh, whether or not to indict. Uh, if they don't, if they recommend not to indict, I, I think the issue will pretty much go away. But let's say that they do recommend, uh, and, and her campaign is, is, you know, planning for the worst. I mean, her four closest aides have all hired criminal attorneys. Uh, the guy who's been given uh, immunity, he, he is another attorney. Uh, she has hired David Kendall, who is uh, leading uh, white-collar crime attorney and, and her longtime attorney from Williams and, and Connolly. Here, here are three things that could happen. You could, the FBI could could recommend that she be indicted, and and the Justice Department could take that recommendation and indict her. Well, that's political dynamite right there. But what if they recommend she be indicted, and the Justice Department declines to indict her? That might be an even bigger uh, political story and have even more serious fallout if that happens. I kind of think what might happen is if, if the FBI recommends she be indicted, what the Attorney General could do is say, you know, to take this thing completely out of politics and make sure it's totally fair, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to appoint a special counsel uh, to take over this case. Now, basically what that would do would bury it until after the election. And then, and then let's say the special counsel, let's say she's elected, and the special counsel then decides... And it's not clear to me whether you can indict a sitting president. I'm not sure that you can. I, I mean, I'm not. I, you can. I, you can, can you? You can impeach, but you... Yeah, and that's what I think. I think the only way is you have to impeach the president first and, and remove him from, or her from office and, and then go ahead with a criminal proceeding. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen on that front, but it's still out there. It's, it's still hanging over all of this, and, and you know, obviously, if, if any of those things happen, that, that too would be a, a major part of this campaign. But I think, basically, it's going to be 
uh, about the economy. But the, the election for president is different than any other election that we have uh, in, in this country. And that is people tend in this case uh, for president, they want the person that they'd be most comfortable with in, in time of a crisis. And, you know, some of these uh, statements that Trump has made about foreign policy and so forth, I think would, would obviously play into that. Uh, but you know, it, 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 and that's and it's a wonderful thing. That's that's the great thing about our country and this whole system of government. The most issue-oriented campaigns are at the lower level. I mean, you know, when you when you vote for somebody for county commissioner or city council, it's because uh, they're either for or against putting many warehouses in your neighborhood, or it's some zoning thing about we need a traffic light. It and so if this guy's for it and this one's against it, you you vote for the one that has promised to do that. Uh, and that's where issues really play the most significant part in our American elections. But for president, that is different than any other vote we cast. It, it's who is the person I'd be most comfortable with in in time of crisis and. Generally, it starts with the economy and then who's going to keep us safe. So, you know, with the world and the shape that it's in right now, I think that's that's where the election will be. Hi, I'm Erin Hoganada. I work for the college in alumni affairs and development. And you spoke earlier about how in this campaign, it seems that attitude matters more than facts, maybe more than mm -hmm. has been the case in the past. And maybe just up until now, maybe that will change as people are probing more with foreign policy. Do you think, um, or if there's any role in, um, you know, the saturation of media that it's a 24-hour cycle now, and it's just easier for people to filter out um, based on attitude versus messaging, and or do you think it's that so many people think the media is biased, and that they, regardless of the facts that are presented to them, they somehow think that the media is slanting them one way or the other? Yeah. You know, uh, that, that's, that's, that's a very good question. And uh, the main thing that has changed right now is we're, we're overwhelmed with information. I mean, 24-7, yeah, we're getting it from all sides and from all points of view. And, and what's different, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, is now we have all this totally false information that's out there. And I mean, it looks real. You can, you know, you can go on these websites and 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 see, uh, and it looks real. Uh, for example, I mean, uh, you know, it was not so long ago that uh, there was a report going out that the president was going to settle 250,000 Syrian refugees in this country. It's totally false. Nobody ever had any plan to do that. There was never any suggestion it would be done. But it became a topic because it got out there and what's happened now, we've always had false information and whisper campaigns in, in campaigns, but now because, you know, it's not just people like me who have access to, to, to the web and to television and stuff like that. It's some kid sitting in his mama's basement at three o'clock in the morning. I mean, you know, he, he can get on the web too. And he can get this stuff out there, and obviously he doesn't follow the same standards that those of us in what I still think of as mainstream journalism do. I mean, number one, we don't print something or broadcast something unless we've gone to the trouble to find out if it's true. And, and uh, the majority of people with access to, to the web and then sense of communication don't, don't, uh, don't follow that standard. So it's trying to sort out 
uh, what's true or not. I mean, and this all really kind of began on 9-11. And that is, in, in journalism, the tradition always is, if you make a mistake, it's your responsibility to correct it. And mainstream media outlets do that. But we found out on 9-11 that we had to correct other people's mistakes. I can't tell you how many times that day, and I mean, I was right in the middle of all this, obviously, that we would get this report that there's another plane headed to the Sears Tower in Chicago. And we'd have to stop what we were doing, check that out, and then report that those reports were not true. Because if we didn't do that, uh, we ran the risk of setting off mass hysteria and panic in the streets, obviously. And it's become more and more for the mainstream media. Our main role is to try to knock down false information. And, and it never stops. I mean, it just goes on and on. I mean, you know, you can go to these blogs and say we never went to the moon. You know, six years after 9-11, they ran a national poll that showed that uh, at that point, 43% uh, of voting age Americans thought that, uh, that the Bush administration had something to do with it. You know, there are still controversies going on about that. but. It's, it's this ability to communicate instantly. I mean, we, we've never had the, the capability to reach people that we have now, and that's the good news. The bad news is the nuts can all find each other, and, and they know where each other are. And, you know, whether you're a terrorist or somebody that, you know, thinks the moon landing was phony, you, you can get in contact with somebody that thinks the same thing as you do. Yeah. Sir Corbin, formerly CIA, are you in a position to give us an assessment on how you think the Obama presidency has fulfilled this mission that you described of the necessity to protect America, especially in light of the red line incident in Syria? Do you think that this sort of weakened the image of Obama? Uh, you know. You're going to think I'm dodging this question when I say this, and I think I think uh, I think America's role. I mean, I think people are questioning America's role and our resolve now uh, because of this uh, inability to to make decisions. Uh, I think obviously that I think the president made a mistake in his Syria policy. I, I don't think you can draw a line, and then when someone crosses that line, I think I think you have to be prepared. Uh, to back that up, but uh, I wrote a book about uh, Ronald Reagan uh, that came out in 1988. It was called The Acting President, and uh, I always thought the best part of the book was the title. I love that title, and I, and I still do. But it, it was my first. It was my first book, and uh, I always looked on it as uh, that's where I learned how to write a book, and. Uh, I look back on that book, and nothing in that book uh, is inaccurate. Everything I put in the book uh, is still right, but the back, but the book was not true. And the reason it was not true is because uh, at that point we didn't know the Soviet Union was going to collapse, uh, and I don't give Ronald Reagan complete and total credit for for the collapse of the Soviet Union, but I do think that his policies. Uh, had a role in that, and and uh, so 
I don't think you can judge a presidency in, for at least five years. You have to kind of see uh, what's going to happen after the president leaves office. For example, if the uh, Pacific Trade Partnership goes through and that works, uh, then that's going to be a very successful thing, and that's going to have a huge impact on our relations uh, with China and all of that. If the uh, if the uh, the the agreement that we've signed uh, with Iran on nuclear weapons, if that works, uh, if that ha goes the way the president says it's going to go, uh, that will be a magnificent achievement. And uh, uh, so, but we don't know yet. And and so. I always, when asked, you know, what do you think about the success of this or that presidency, I always say, you know, I, I want to wait at least five years before I make a final judgment on that. And uh, so we'll see. So, Bob Schieffer, uh, as with the other uh, events, thank you very much, and uh, what a pleasure it's been. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.